This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of All Possibilities is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. This episode is brought to you by Providence St. Joseph Health. Health goes beyond the hospital. A child can't learn if he doesn't get breakfast. A mother with depression can't parent well without mental health care. An elderly person can't be well without adequate nutrition. No one can heal if they can't access care. At Providence St. Joseph Health, we believe health is a human right. See what we're doing to improve care for all and address social factors that affect health. Visit future.psjhealth.org. There's a quiet battle in motion. The field this podcast lives in exists, yet has no official name. Its consciousness, its spirituality, its extrasensory perception, its energy, it's all of those things. And yet even as this field continues to discover its own identity, it is still considered pseudoscience for some in the scientific community. And there's a challenge for funding and acceptance, even after many years of research and evidence. One of the leading champions in this area is Dr. Cassandra Veaton, a psychologist, scientist, and president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, a nonprofit that's dedicated to supporting transformation and realization of our human potential. For months, I've been eager to welcome her onto the podcast, and now she's here. Coming up, you'll hear Dr. Veaton discuss cutting-edge research that they're working on, the opportunity to apply consciousness, meditation, ESP, and more towards self-compassion and social change, and how science-based practices can help changemakers communicate more effectively with global impact. Welcome to the All Possibilities podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. Cassie, Cassandra, Cassie, I am such a fan of ions, the work, the anything that has to do with scientific research and being at the forefront of this field. So it is an absolute thrill. I've been waiting for so long to get you here into the studio. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Happy to be here. So let's start off by sharing about yourself. How is it that you became president of this organization and how does that relate to your own journey? Well, I am a psychologist and I was raised by, my dad was a scientist and he was a um, biologist, biochemist and a university professor. And so he was very much uh, interested in the scientific exploration of the material world or the natural world and um, did not have a lot of sci uh, spiritual interests, um, definitely agnostic, if not atheist, and certainly someone who was like religion is not has not been a good thing for humanity in general. Um, so he was really a secular humanist, you know, full on. And my mom was somebody who had more interest in the symbolic world. She ended up becoming a Jungian-oriented psychotherapist, and she was interested in dreams and symbols and um, storytelling. And it's not super surprising that they divorced when I was nine. 
Um, and they both found people who were much better for them than each other in terms of a, a romantic partnership. And so now I feel like I have four parents. Um, but during that upbringing, you know, my mom introduced me to that fascination with the inner world as something that was very important. My dad introduced me to the adventure of exploring the outer world. So it was, you know, he often had telescopes. He's an amateur astronomer. We'd pick up pond water and bring it home and put it under a microscope to look at the little beings and was super into art and literature and things like that. So I think that gave me the groundwork for appreciating both ways of knowing the outer and the inner. And I trained to become a psychologist. I was going to be a psychotherapist with clients. And by the time I finished my training, I just had this tiny misgiving in the back of my mind that was like, okay, this is good. You're going to be able to help one person at a time, but you're not going to be able to help thousands or millions of people. And so I got really excited about turning the lens of science onto the things that I was learning in my psychology program, because um, even at that time, I had become interested in meditation. My graduate program was a combination of Eastern philosophy, indigenous wisdom, and Western psychology, and that was at the California Institute of Integral Studies. But there wasn't a whole lot of actual science done on those topics. And so that's what brought me to the Institute of Noetic Sciences was to bring the scientific method to these ways of knowing our inner world. Mm. That's so amazing how it kind of fits in with how you grew up and the, the perspectives that you had, the very disparate perspectives. I'm curious, when you were studying psychology, was the field very open to spirituality, maybe psychic experiences, things mm. of that nature? Well, in my undergraduate work, no, certainly not. It was uh, very much um, just beginning to move from behaviorism into cognitive behavioral psychology. So it was at the time when psychoanalysis and depth psychology were kind of moving out of vogue. And what was coming in was, you know, how can we change the way you think about things? How can we change the way you feel about things? And that's going to change everything. And so cognitive behavioral therapy started to become very important, as did um, psychotropic medications so that people could get help from that world. It was the very beginning of, you know, SSRIs giving people a lot of help. So I think that's all great, actually, really good, good things. Um, but it started to even more than behaviorism had eliminate the symbolic world and eliminate the spiritual world as a um, important part of what was happening. So when I got into it, I took a class in Buddhism just as like my philosophy requirement as an undergrad, but it captivated me because it had embedded within it a form of psychology that helped to understand what the source of suffering was and what the pathway out of suffering was. And um, for most people who know about Buddhism, maybe some most of your listeners do, it really boils down to just a uh, misunderstanding. You know, it's thinking that things we that make us comfortable, we should keep permanently and things that make us uncomfortable, we should eliminate, which was pretty interesting to me because that's sort of what cognitive behavioral psychotherapy was teaching too. you know, get rid of the stuff that bothers you and enhance the things that make you feel better. And there's some truth to that. But the actual truth is the attempt to keep the things you like, and get rid of the things you don't like causes more suffering than uh, it's kind of a paradox. 
So I got really interested in this idea, and that's what took me into graduate school where I purposely chose a grad school that was focused specifically on Buddhist psychology and, and Western psychology. Interesting. How did IONS start, and what are some of the achievements or accomplishments that the organization has? Well, the Institute of Noetic Sciences was founded by the Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth person to walk on the moon. And he, on the way back from his moonwalk, had the window seat in the space capsule. And so the space capsule is rotating every 10 minutes, and he's seeing this amazing kind of unlimited vista of the Earth, the stars, the sun, and the moon. And he felt overcome with a profound sense of interconnectedness, oneness. Um, it was what he later learned to call a samadhi experience coming out of the Hindu literature that was um, ecstatic bliss at the recognition of the lack of separation of yourself with everything that is. So felt like the boundaries of his body disappeared and the boundaries of the space capsule and that everything was really one and there was an intelligence or divinity or light shining through everything. Um, and then he also viewed the earth from that vantage point and could see very clearly and immediately that it was uh, the vast majority of the suffering on the planet was caused by limitations in our own human consciousness that war and inequity of resources and degradation of the environment and all of these things that were facing us were problems in our worldviews, not so much problems outside of us that couldn't be solved, but strange ways that we were misunderstanding what was possible in terms of our own human potential and our connectedness with other people on the planet. So when he came back to Earth, um, he two years later started the Institute of Noetic Sciences in 1973. And we've been around for 45 years, and our main focus has been to try to foster a shift in human consciousness that has a more expanded and um, accurate um, perspective on the nature of reality and human potential um, that takes into account experiences like knowing somebody that you love is in trouble at a distance and not knowing how you knew that, but finding out later that it was true or having a dream with veridical knowledge in it about the future or um, being able to uh, direct attention toward the healing of another person and having that actually work. Um, knowing information that you have no way of knowing. Those kinds of things speak to um, the possibility of a uh, not solely materialistic view. In other words, it's not just what we see, the table, the chair, the walls, each other. Um, those appear to all be completely separated, and the only way that we'd be able to communicate with each other would be to send each other a letter or a phone call or to speak to each other. But it's also possible that there's an interconnected aspect of reality where information can travel or more accurately, maybe information resides um, simultaneously. Maybe it's not, it's outside of time and space. And that this is what the wisdom traditions have been pointing to for millennia. So that's kind of the overarching hypothesis is maybe there's a different layer of reality that does connect us all and that explains those kinds of experiences. Hmm. What have you found through the research that 
your organization has done and also others, if, if there are others yeah, that you draw Yeah, I mean, upon. for a very long time, ION's main purpose was to bring together all of the work happening in the whole field, not just our work, but looking into all the different people who had been focusing on these topics like the um, Rhine Center at Duke University or the Pear Center at Princeton. And there have been these pockets all over the world, actually, of scientists who have tried to investigate these extraordinary phenomena. And sometimes they've been successful and able to get uh, mainstream funding. And um, other times it's been very, very difficult. And it's been people with their home labs just trying to kind of advance this idea. But um, often that's where a lot of great discoveries are made, like Tesla, you know, had a home lab. And so over this time, you know, we've done a lot of experiments on whether people are connected and able to um, transmit or perceive information between two people who are separated, um, either 400 feet away from each other or 4,000 feet away from each other. We've looked at mind-body healing and to what extent do people's beliefs and intentions have an effect on their own body and on other people. And then also mind-matter interactions. Is it when we look at... Um, Say, for example, the behavior of photons in a quantum optical system. This is more recently the work of Dean Radin, for example. Um, when people pay attention to the systems, do the systems behave differently? Or when there are fluctuations in collective attention, do systems behave differently at the quantum level? Um, and so all of it really is trying to... Um, find out whether there's an aspect of our mind that extends beyond our physical body. And so we have some very good data that suggest that there is some evidence for pre-sentiment or precognition, for example, that people are able to sense into the future um, at a statistically above chance level. In other words, if you ask somebody... Uh, what picture is about to appear out of these four pictures, and you ask them 60 times to do the same thing, what you'll find is they should have um, about a 25% rate of being correct by chance, but they have more like a 30% chance. And that's kind of across the board with telepathy, with um, people trying to send each other information. There's this uh, above chance, significantly above chance ability. What we don't have yet is reliable, robust, this works every single time, you know, even among fairly talented people, we don't have um, a research paradigm yet that is, you know, every time I pay attention to this system, it goes from red to green, or every single time I look into the future, I select the right picture. So now what we're up to is saying, okay, there's enough clues, there's enough evidence to suggest that we should pursue this, this isn't just by chance. Um, but now we're trying to optimize either the training of the individual or the state of the mind of the individual who's either perceiving or sending information. Um, maybe the actual environment they're in is something to do with it. And so, and maybe the receiving um, piece needs a particular kind of environment or set of conditions to work better. So now we're trying to create um, what we're calling Ion's Moonshot which is a robust and reliable demonstration of mental influence on another physical system without um, something that can be explained by conventional means. Mm. That makes me think of all the different 
uh, spiritual or or just completely unexpected experiences as my in my own life and and one that I always go back to on this podcast is spoon bending. So I'm curious. So there was a, an instance where it was a class actually, and we um, would intend for a metal spoon that we were holding to bend. And most of the class was about quantum physics and letting go of the outcome. Essentially, most I'd say 99% of the time we were attached to the fact that the spoon was not bending. Mm-hmm. And so we were just distracting ourselves. And we found that in the moment that we did distract ourselves, usually there had to be some kind of emotional connection. Like if I had shared a story mm. to the group and it touched someone else, then both of us were able to bend the spoon. Mm. And and now so I have this whole collection of really amazingly twisted forks and spoons in, in my apartment. And I've always wondered, you know, how how can you how can if if this is so real for me, how can we demonstrate this or test this or as an experiment and why and kind of stepping back like why is it that more people are not are more people are aware that there is this um mind over matter mm. that to me is so real that um and it, it really required doing the seemingly impossible to to convince my brain yeah. my belief system that it was possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a big question. One is that um, I'll start off with the most conservative answer, which is that the people who, like us, who are doing research in these domains, we have to create bigger effect sizes that are more reliable and robust. So we need to do a lot more research on, again, what are the conditions under which this is most likely to happen? What is the training or state of mind that the person doing it needs to be in? Um, What are the ideal targets? How do we exclude any possibility of cheating or, you know, conventional phenomena? So that we will continue to work on. And it's kind of upon us to make those results more reliable, just like in any field. On the other hand, there's also a problem in this domain of research because it's very threatening to the reigning paradigm. So very little funding goes in this direction, even though it could be key to um, a whole next level of evolution, maybe for humanity. Um, And there's a lot of bias against the topic in publications and grants. And, you know, there's uh, sometimes people have called it the ATF or the anti-tenure factor that anybody who's interested in these domains in a university setting, if you're a young professor is, you know, like, don't do that. You will never get tenure. You'll be kicked out. You'll be kind of ridden out of town on a rail. So there's a kind of very active squelching of these kinds of topics uh, because people consider them at a knee-jerk level pseudoscience. And so we hear that a lot, you know, this isn't this pseudoscience. And most people who say that they think it's pseudoscience because of the topic being studied. They say, well, for example, I, um, we submitted a paper not long ago that, um, got a review from the editor of the journal and it was a long multi-paragraph review that was basically like, you know, look, this is, uh, good science. It, 
does all the things that science is supposed to do. It's, you know, very good protocols. And there's only one problem. This is impossible. Like this is not something that's possible. So if you were going to send in a paper that said pigs could fly or you could turn water into wine or one plus one equals three, then I would have to give you the same answer I'm giving you now, which is no. And we were like, wow. wow. I mean, that's just straight <laughs> out, like not possible. So that's what a lot of the scientific community feels about these things. And um, so I think there's also, uh, you know, again, it's upon those of us who are having these experiences and wanting to study them to make a strong case for them. But there's also a need in the scientific community to be more open to um, new discoveries. All right. Isn't the field of science all about discovering? I yeah. Mean, while ago, we thought the world was flat. Right, right. right. Oh, and, you know. And we would, persecuted people who who thought otherwise. Right. And, you know, or that the um, sun rotated around the earth or mm -hmm. that people couldn't run a four-minute mile or it would, you know, stop their hearts or there's, a, you know, trains couldn't go over 35 miles an hour or everybody on board would combust. You know, there's all mm -hmm. these ideas about what's possible and what's not possible. And usually in my role as president, I don't often get into the argument about the content, but I will say to other scientists, um, do you think that we know everything there is to know about human potential now? And of course they say no, you know, and I'll say, do you think we know everything about the nature of reality that there is to know? And they'll say no. And so, you know, the, I'll end with saying, do you believe in academic freedom? You know, do you believe that scientists should be able to follow up on observations without censorship and they'll say yes and then it's kind of like okay do you believe that we should be able to study precognition and telepathy and they're like oh that's different <laughs> <You know>? oh. <laughs> so I do think it's changing um when we give talks at major conferences the room is completely full and um a lot of the people are young so people under 40 scientists who are younger are not only open-minded, they're sort of like, yes, I, I know this happened to my brother, this happened to my uncle, it happened in my life, and I'm totally interested in studying it. So I hope that we're um, coming toward a breakthrough in being able to widen the study of these phenomena. It's really interesting because I was, I was reading a book by um, Lynn McTaggart, I think is her name. It was The Intention Experiment. And it was a fantastic compilation of all the different studies that have been done um, on this field. And everything seemed, seemed very complex, just the different angles that you could approach this field, because it is so vast. Mm. It could be healing. It could be intention. It could be um, uh, anything else. Mm. And one of the experiments, and I, I'll... I'm, I can't say I'm very articulate at describing the experiment and maybe maybe you'll do a better job that I found really fascinating that helped me kind of um, talk to my skeptical side mm. <laughs> because I still definitely have that. The very rational side of me has, still holds a part that says, well, I still need the scientific proof mm. to let me believe fully that how I'm intending or how I'm approaching this will um, yield fruit. Mm -hmm. And one of the experiments had to do with, uh, uh, I think it was a 
robot. It was like a random number generator mm-hmm, or robot mm-hmm. that um, moved closer to a little baby chick mm. that intended for the robot to be closer to it because it it generally imprints on a mother. Mm, mm. And so normally the robot would have this very random um, line of movement in this enclosed area. And when there was a baby chick kind of putting its intention on the robot to be closer, Mm. it actually moved closer. And Mm. so it influenced the movement of the supposedly very random um, machine. Um, are you familiar with I'm not familiar that with that experiment. experiment. I love it. That's great. That's yeah. a great protocol. It's it which then makes me think the power of our intention and the power of our thoughts really and how we direct it which I mean for the most part it's either very negative or you know worried focused on a lot of concerns or worries mm-hmm. or not mm-hmm. intentional at all. Mm-hmm. And that to me helped me look back and be very mindful of of how I behave. So I'm curious for you, is there a, a an experiment that did something similar for you that was mm. maybe the results were surprising or that helped you to kind of solidify your belief in something that you maybe weren't quite there yet? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think back to a more personal experience that was not a um, was not an experiment. I was giving a lecture or giving a talk with Dean Radin, who's our chief scientist, and he's written a few books. One called "The Conscious Universe" and "Entangled Minds," and a book called "Supernormal." And his most recent is called "Real Magic." And he's been a pioneer in this field. And anyway, we were invited to speak at. Uh, group that was meeting in Northern California. We went together and it was a group meeting in a church and the church had these A-frame, very, very large A-frame uh, chapel where we were giving the talk. And so Dean did a little demonstration with the group saying, we're going to do a remote viewing exercise and I have you know thousands of pictures that I'll randomly select one from in my computer and it hasn't been chosen yet. And I want you to sketch out what you think you're going to see. And he gave traditional remote viewing instructions, which goes back to one of the things that you were talking about, which is really kind of letting go of the narrative, letting go of the words and just letting impressions come to you and um, being very open to it. And um, I think you mentioned something about almost like being in relationship with another person helped you do mm-hmm. it or being distracted helped mm-hmm. you do it. So in a way, this is like shut off your narrative mind, let yourself sort of be distracted and let an impression come into you, um, bypassing your usual defenses and filters. So I drew this big swooping, two big swooping triangles pointing upward. And I lifted my head and looked at the A-frame and I thought, oh, you just drew the A-frame. You know, that's silly. And so when he pulled up the picture, it was the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was exactly these two swooping triangles. And I was like, Dean, Dean, it worked, you know? And he was like, I know, this is what we're studying. And, you know, for me, I was, even though I was really, really into it and interested, I was like, oh my gosh, that is like huge synchronicity, you know, Mm -hmm. really beyond chance. And so that was one experience. 
And then the experiments definitely have um, solidified my, my, um, well, I wouldn't say my belief. I would say the data that we have available to us now tells us that this field deserves further research. And um, I'm really interested in optimizing the research and making it more reliable, more robust, larger effect sizes, and seeing if we can't really crack the code using one of our studies to advance the field more than it has been already. Because now there's been, you know, several decades of showing this above chance in these smaller experiments. And so I'm kind of like, okay, what is our moonshot? You know, what is our... Manhattan Project, which is not a great example, you know, but the opposite of the Manhattan Project. So, Coming up, you'll hear more about the future of research and how kindness and compassion can change lives in the field of consciousness. Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com. Welcome to Hashtag Moms Got This. Get your mom life fix four days a week. I'm Michelle Parr. And I'm Stacey Eagle. Together, we chatted up with a new boss mom each week about her journey and why she's got this. Make sure to subscribe and show us some love on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever the best podcasts are found. And remember, Moms Got This. <laughs> a lot of friends and colleagues of mine who were either in economic development or um, business who have been experiencing their own awakenings. Um, Their consciousness has been expanding. They may have had their own experiences that they can't really explain. And so their own perspectives have been shifting And not all of them have had the support to know what in the world is going on. Mm. So I'm curious to know how you see your work relating to what anecdotally it seems like there is a shift Mm. or a change in perception and and how you think your work can support a Mm. further transformation of of humanity, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the key driver for the Institute of Noetic Sciences and certainly throughout my whole life has been how do we shift people's perspectives in ways that make it more difficult for them to be unkind to other people and themselves? Um, How do we bring people to ways of looking at the world where it's hard for them or impossible for them to engage in behaviors that benefit themselves while harming others. Um, And what can help us bring people to kind of driving principles that bring things like love and kindness and connection and healing and creation of beauty to the center of their lives as opposed to on the periphery of their lives. Like when I get done with everything else, then I'll do those things. Um, It's almost sort of like flipping Maslow's hierarchy on its head where we think, you know, 
everybody's got to have all their basic needs met first and then they have to have the you know next layer and then they have the next layer and then the very top is this kind of luxurious level of belonging needs or esteem needs and we like to sometimes say that those needs may even be as important as the food and shelter needs um people feeling that sense of belonging and connection um sometimes lays the groundwork for them to be able to feed themselves, make money, create um, products and um, inventions that serve everyone. So it's really elevating the importance of the inner world to be equal to the pursuits of the outer world. And so we did a study recently that was published in Explore uh, Journal of Science and Healing that was a survey of thousands of people, just kind of a random email survey, and asking about had they had any of these extraordinary experiences that were awakening to them, you know, telepathy, precognition, um, experiences of multidimensional beings, you know, really pretty far out stuff, precognitive dreams. And we found that in an enthusiast group with which is not super surprising. It was like 95% of people had had these experiences, maybe more, you know, that was like the IONS membership. But then we had this other group that was scientists and engineers, and they were randomly selected, not from the IONS sample at all, just from lists we bought. And even when you took out some of the ones that could be construed as conventional, like um, coming up with an idea in a dream that later turned out to be true, um, there were still a full 80% of scientists and engineers that had reported extraordinary experiences, inexplicable experiences. So I think you're right that no matter what field you're in, no matter what kind of person you are, um, people have these experiences. And so the question is, what does it tell us about who we are and what we're capable of and what we're here to do? And um, I think that it has a very deep, um, deeply important and profound evolutionary purpose, these experiences. And so a lot of our work, in addition to these extraordinary capacities, has to do with when people have these experiences of self-transcendence or going beyond their individual self, feeling part of a larger whole, what happens in their lives and what kind of people do they become? especially if they are able to integrate those experiences by finding practices that help them to uh, keep in touch with that in their everyday life, like meditation or yoga or qigong or whatever their prayer, whatever their practice is, especially if they find a community that they can talk to or at least listen to, like the people on this podcast. There may be many people listening to this podcast who have zero people they could talk about talk about any of this too without being ridiculed. So things like this and things like ions give people a safe, intelligent space where they can explore these ideas without fear of ostracization or ridicule. Um, and then I think maybe most important, what we find is people who have these experiences and engage in these practices and communities tend to start to make their lives about service and they want to help other people. They want to make they realize that it's not just about me and my awakening. It's about all of us. And that can be anywhere from something small that they do. They volunteer at a soup kitchen once a week, 
or they something huge. They start a multinational NGO to give microloans to, you know, people in third world countries who need a leg up, everything in between. Um, but a lot of the people who are doing good things in the world have had one of these experiences that made them recognize that, oh, I know what I'm doing here. It's not just about me or making money or getting accolades or acquiring things. It's about making a better life for everyone. Very beautifully put. And definitely um, a chapter that I think a lot of the people I work with who are my clients and, and myself, I think we're on that. I think there's always a, a part of us that wants to help people and wants to empower people. But now it's on a much larger scale. And it seems like a much stronger calling when mm. before maybe it was let's climb the corporate ladder, let's, you know, get a bigger paycheck or a bonus. And now it's it's just that can't fulfill someone anymore. Yeah, sometimes I like to say it becomes um, central mm -hmm. to their lives instead of, you know, when I get done with everything else, I'll attend to those things. It becomes a driving force or a true north, you know, where they people are oriented toward that. And you could still have a completely conventional job and climb the ladder and get bonuses and all that stuff. It's just what presence of mind and being do you bring to that and how do you treat other people and how do you treat yourself in the process of doing that? Um, and do you share the wealth and do you share the credit? And, you know, there's just a complete difference between, um, doing it when doing it this way and doing it in the old fashioned way, which is, you know, every person for themselves and, you know, survival of the fittest and that kind of thing. Right. You talked about, being kind to others and um, being mindful of how we treat other people. And I think on, on one level, it's something that, yes, of course, it's great. You know, everyone should think about this. But on a practical execution level, when we look day to day at our own lives, mm -hmm. at how we treat people, usually I find that we are probably the meanest to the people who are closest to us, whether it's a spouse or um, family member. You know, at least for me, I know I get snippy when mm -hmm. when maybe for other people I am I have more of a a filter. Mm. And down to maybe even you know how we uh, how we interact with people who are less fortunate. Like on the mm -hmm. subway, for example, mm -hmm. we get a lot of people who are. Um, who are homeless, who are asking for help. Mm. And it's, it's always very uncomfortable when you have someone mm. visibly asking for help, whether or not it's, mm. you know, founded or real, you know, a lot of people are, are thinking about that. But when you have an entire subway car not offer help mm -hmm. from this call of, for humanity, and sometimes myself included, I'll be like, you know, I'm just looking down, I'm <laughs> looking mm -hmm. at my phone or something. Mm. And those little moments maybe are just a blip in our day, at least for me, mm -hmm. but then they add up over time. Like if we, if I take a step back and look at how mm -hmm. am I behaving, how are all of us mm -hmm. behaving? What, what can we do? So what, what ideas do you have, whether from your own experience or um, from your research about how, how can we be, 
kind mm. and actually translate that into behavior changes? Yeah. Well, I would say with a few exceptions, we're probably meanest actually to ourselves. You know, that most too. people are probably <laughs> the cruelest to themselves in the terms of how they talk to themselves or what they force themselves to do. Um, and then that ripples out to how we treat other people. So there's very good research now showing that the practice of self-compassion is even more important than self-esteem or um, even mindfulness by itself without self-compassion doesn't have the same results that self-compassion practices have. So I think that's a really important point. Um, you know, in terms of how we treat other people and ourselves, I just think it's not surprising at all. Um, because if you look at, let's say, K through 12 education in the United States, and you ask a hundred people, if we walked outside of this building right now and walked down the street, how many courses did you take in how to examine your inner world, in how to regulate your emotions, in how to be resilient in the face of challenge, in how to deal with differences of opinion from other people, uh, how to deal with anger and sadness, how to forgive. In your entire K-12 through education, how many courses did you take on emotional intelligence or on your own nature as a human, most people would say not only not a course, not even a class, not even one Zero. hour, nothing. <laughs> so the fact that that kind of education is not imbued from kindergarten through 12th grade, that as just as important, if not more important than reading and writing and arithmetic and science and history and all of these things is kind of a collective insanity. There really should be what we would call noetic education um, or anybody could call just emotional intelligence or examination of our inner worlds and where do our thoughts come from? How do we make decisions? Because the truth is it's probably only 20% of our actions are conscious and they are actual decisions that we make. And 80% of our thoughts and actions are non-conscious or implicit. They're under the layer of awareness. And that's um, good in a way for cognitive efficiency because you wouldn't want to have to go through your day every day having to rethink what life means, you know, every hour. So you want to have this 80% of you that's kind of got it nailed and it's all categorized and you just look at things and you say, well, what's, how does that compare to my previous experience? Great, check, move on. Um, but that's a big problem too. If you don't, number one, most people don't even know that that's true. And if you have no clue how to delve into the non-narrative, non-conscious, and even deeper spiritual aspects of yourself um, to find the roots of your meaning and purpose, it's going to leave you um, with a atrophied muscles for being able to be in relationship, being able to manage your life, being able to manage your emotions. And where does that lead us? It leads us to epidemics of addiction. Um, you know, everybody looking into a screen with at least 50% of their time because it's so painful 
you know, it's so painful to just, there was a great study where they had people, um, they asked them to go sit in a room for 10 minutes or something. I can't remember the exact time, but it was like, please go sit quietly in a room for 10 minutes. And they gave them this, um, compensation, like college students, $20 and, (laughs) you know, no phone, no book, no nothing, just sit with yourself quietly. And they came out and they said it was just terrible. And then they said, would you go in and do it again? And a lot of them even said, no, I won't do it even for the more compensation. So just being without any distractions is actually very difficult for most people. So that that I think we can change. We can bring that kind of education into our schools. We can bring that education into business school. We can bring that education into the training of doctors, nurses, um, so that all of society's institutions can have almost be rounded out to include the inner world as part of what's going on. And Strangely, that kind of automatically includes ethics as a almost a side effect of deep investigation of your inner self. Um, so when people are taught meditation, for example, over the course of weeks, months, years, there's a natural arising of the drive toward compassion for most people. You know, there are some people that it just doesn't ever, doesn't ever hit them. And then the last thing I'd say is even with all of that, we're still going to fall back. And so then the key is to know how to truly apologize, truly make amends once you recognize it to repair it with the person and to know yourself that I'm going to walk through this life and make mistakes all the time and have misunderstandings constantly And I'm still going to love myself for that. And I'm especially going to because I have the ability to go to the other person and say, you know, yesterday when I said that thing to you, I realized that was really unkind. And, you know, let's have a cup of coffee. I just want to do anything I can to repair our relationship after that. Like, how often does that happen in a business setting? (laughs) Um, So it's not about becoming perfect. It's about becoming real and vulnerable and willing to repair even if you kind of fall off the beam. Hmm. Yeah, that's incredibly important in work situations, in entrepreneurship. Communication really is mm. key and compassionate communication for for yourself as well as the people around you. Mm. What it seem I feel like there are maybe some progressive schools out there in the K through mm-hmm, twelve space mm-hmm. who are incorporating social emotional learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely know there are nonprofits out there that teach mindfulness and yoga, Mm -hmm. meditation, even transcendental meditation in schools and really for for any population. Do you think that's enough or is there some other approach that would be ideal? Because right now it seems like these are tools and techniques that... um, require practice really for it to be effective. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's good that there are alternative schools, you know, alternative approaches to health and healing that include these things. But I think our, the goal must be to bring it from being alternative into the mainstream. And I think 
the biggest problem is that once we kind of figure out a set of practices and communities and a cosmology that, in other words, cosmology meaning just a way of explaining things, that is a pathway toward the kinds of things that we've been talking about, extending our human capacities or becoming kinder people or becoming more self-regulated or higher emotional intelligence or more connected with spirit, being able to access information that um, conventionally we shouldn't be able to access. There's something about human nature that immediately makes it into a dogma. And it wants to say, all right, now that we have this set of strategies, tools, communities, language, practices, that's the way. And all the other ways are wrong and bad. And it's also got to be fixed in time so that even after 10 or 20 or 30 years, if we find out that it's kind of not working, we're going to stay with this anachronistic way of doing it because we think it's right. What does that sound like? It becomes a religion, basically. It becomes a dogma. And that's a tricky, tricky thing because I I understand the desire to want to fix something in time once you think, like, I've got it. That's it. That's the whole thing. It's one thing I love about the scientific method because in its purest form, the scientific method is new data can always change whatever you find. So if you're, this is the best understanding we have with the data that we have now, but if you're a truly a scientist, if you, if new data come that disprove that, then you change your theory and you incorporate the new data. That's the problem with, um, I think some of the alternative programs is they're wonderful, but they're not willing to be flexible for, let's say a different learning style of a student or, maybe updating some of their things to be more technologically relevant and things like that. So I think what we're looking for is something that it's a tall order, something that retains the wisdom of the past, but stays flexible to new understandings and data and keeps changing over time, keeps updating itself. Mm. Coming up, you'll hear how changemakers can use consciousness and science-based practices to communicate their message more effectively. Are you interested in getting your own intuitive reading? Are you wondering how you can align more with your purpose? I offer introductory sessions to my Discover Your Purpose readings and coaching. As part of the All Possibilities community, you get 10% off the intro session. You get a one-on-one phone call with me where I'll do an assessment of your life and give you an intuitive reading on the highest guidance for you at this time. You'll get actionable steps that you can get started on to create the life you want. Just use All Possibilities 2018 as the promo code. That's All Possibilities 2018. Visit beingmypurpose.com for more information on my services. I'm a huge fan of citizen science and the idea, I think, from my own experience of going through a spiritual awakening 
receiving and channeling all of this information that that I found to help people in understanding their purpose, I then want to help inform future research. And I, my hypothesis is that the number of scientists out there who are either looking at this field or are, you know, even working within your organization may not be as familiar with all the nuances of psychic information, all the emotions that we go through, the kinds of information that go, that come up. And I'm curious how often or like how how can people get involved to partner or even have a dialogue with scientists to understand okay this is my human experience and these are you know everyone else's human experiences about these particular phenomenon how can we craft um research or experiments that look into things of this nature. For example, I receive so many different metaphors and information that's all channeled. I have thousands of pages right now. And there has to be some way to analyze it, dissect it, do a data visualization or or even, you know, take that information and um, kind of lay it over someone's life timeline of this life, of past mm. lives, of future lives, there's so much that can be done, but I don't have the capacity. But there may be other people who can use this information to to analyze it and to further our understanding mm. of what this means, kind of even beyond the does this exist, yes or no, to how can we leverage this and how can we apply it um, in new and different ways that maybe we haven't thought about. Mm. So my my question is how can people get involved or collaborate in this way is that something that people are open to or is it really against the scientific method or or how experiments are conducted yeah no i'm a big fan of citizen science as well and um I wish that the Institute of Noetic Sciences had more opportunities for people to collaborate and participate that are having these experiences out there. Um, we do have a program online called GOTSI, G-O-T-P-S-I, and it's a place where people can go and do experiments online, which is helpful for us. Um our director of research, Helene Wabe, is um, somebody who is a fascinating person because she's got scientific training in, as a naturopathic physician and then as a mind-body medicine researcher who has been investigating the effects of meditation on PTSD and combat veterans and things like that. But she also grew up in a family of full trance channels. And so she has launched at IONS a channeling research initiative, which is the first of its kind. There's very little, if any, actual science on channeling. And so she started by having a group of, I think, about 14 to 16 channels um, engage in the channeling and then come together as a group and channel together and then do... Um, EEG measurements individually where they have a brainwave measurement as they're doing the channeling to see what the channeling state, how does it differ from a normal waking state. So we're just starting to open that up. 
Um, but I think what you're saying would be amazing if we could somehow figure out a way. There was a there was an experiment a while back called Gaia's Dreams, and it was where people were uploading their dream imagery into a database. And Dean Radin was working on analyzing the kinds of descriptors and symbols and metaphors that were being used to see, in particular, whether, let's say, before 9-11, where there are a lot of dreams about buildings and fires and airplanes and crashes and things like that. So I think something like that could be revived, possibly, and mobile technology gives us a great opportunity to be able to do that in a very quick way. And now voice recognition software is so good that, you know, you could literally have people just stopping and talking into their phones about information they got that then could be transcribed and put into a massive database and, you know, use AI protocols or machine learning protocols to sort out all of that information. So one thing we're going to be doing at the IONS campus in December is a hackathon where we're bringing in Silicon Valley engineers from high tech to help have them help us come up with protocols for analyzing massive data sets. And one of the data sets we have been able to start working with is Twitter. So we look at the millions of tweets in the week prior to a big um, devastating event or a big positive event and see again, if we can see that some of the words are starting to uh, appear more frequently before an event like that happens to see if there's a kind of collective presentiment. So those are the kinds of things that we've done so far, but I think it could be taken a lot further. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so much more technology now and um, even in kind of personal EEG yeah, devices exactly. that track whether, you know, how you're meditating to help you give that biofeedback or neurofeedback. Yeah, you there's... can even measure your heart rate by putting your finger in front of your phone camera light and get your heart rate. So, yeah, you can do um, momentary ecological assessment. They call it EMA, where you can ping people on their phones and say, okay, right now, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? Put your finger in front of the camera. Let me get your heart rate. It's kind of amazing. Oh, cool. It's like a mood, mood meter, (laughs) but high tech. And so kind of given the nature of society now, I mean, there's just so much going on. How do you see your work kind of playing in the space of um, moving forward evolution? Mm. Well, one project I'm very excited about is called Consciousness Communication and Change, or C3. And this is taking, it's almost the, if you look at a lot of the things that we've been talking about so far, they're on the R&D end of things, and then moving it all the way over to the application end of things. Um, I like to call it, it's almost like giving Jedi powers to change agents. So there are people who are working hard for resolutions, solutions to climate change or prison reform or um, environmental justice or civil rights and a hundred other causes that we all care about and we all think are important. And yet they're using a very conventional old approach to convincing people by peppering them with facts and trying to get them outraged and distressed and disgusted about the issue. And what we know from not just Ion's research, but a lot of different people's research is that that factual narrative method 
not that it's not important, but using it solely is ineffective for creating change in people's minds. And then that instilling outrage or distress or defeat or fear, threat, urgency um, is also not effective. It actually puts people into a mode of wanting to shut down more and not listen to you more. So we're bringing the science of what we know about what makes it more likely that someone will consider a new possibility or open their minds to a new solution um, and applying that to training change agents. And so far we're finding some really good outcomes that people who have been working on a issue for a long, long time will take the course and learn techniques that make it more likely that their message will get across to people because it's not just informational, but also experiential. It's not just focused on the problem. It's also focused on the vision and it brings into practice these, um, very powerful aspects of people's beings, their attention, their intention. And in some ways we're really trying to help people cultivate a powerful presence when they're conveying their passion about a topic by getting out of the way and letting something bigger shine through them. It's almost like the channeling that you've experienced mm -hmm. that when somebody gets in touch with their, what they're here to do, what their purpose is for whatever reason, they have an affinity for working on climate change. That's their job. That's their assignment in this life. Um, then we give them tools from science to help them be more effective in their communication. But even more important, we give them practices from the world's wisdom traditions that allow them to sort of get out of the way and let their purpose come through them. And when that happens, people in the audience can feel it. You know, you felt it with Martin Luther King Jr. You felt it with JFK or, you know, Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, you know, the, the greatest change makers. When you listen to them, you weren't just hearing the words they were saying, you were feeling something from them that it was ineffable. And so I think that we can use what we've been talking about to be applied directly to solving some of society's problems and making change makers much more inspiring and effective and even addressing some of the political polarization that we're seeing now because everyone's so focused on the problem and so focused on what the other side is doing wrong, not as focused on solutions and visions for a realistic aspirational future. That's incredible. And I'm very excited because I know you're doing these workshops around the world, right? Yes, or at least yeah. definitely one in New York. Coming yeah. Up. yeah. Uh, last question, which is given the state of where the field mm. is right now and the challenges that you see, what what do you think needs to happen to get you to this ideal vision mm. of where you want to be or where this field wants mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm. in 10 years, 20 years? Yeah. Well, IONS is embarking on a five to 10 year project. Now there's two things. One is that we're creating one of the, the largest study ever done on transformational practices and experiences. So we're, 
studying thousands of people who engage in practices like meditation or uh, channeling, prayer, whatever their practices, energy healing, um, shamanic drumming, you know, every all the varieties of ways that people have learned to explore their inner world or the spiritual world. And we're doing measures before and after those experiences to see if we can detect which ones improve well-being, health, compassion, and then which ones also allow people to access some of these extended human capacities. So that'll be an interesting project, sort of like the Framingham Heart Study or the Harvard Nurses Study, where there was this big experiment trying to, or the Human Genome Project, you know, of consciousness. Lots and lots of data to try to see if something emerges as themes that we can say, look, every time somebody did this or every time somebody had this experience, they also had this other ability that was increased. So let's focus in on that. Um, and so I think those kinds of big, bold, you know, they call them hairy audacious goals, like moving out of the incremental research where we're, you know, let's again have 24 people see if they can guess one of the four pictures or, you know, like those are probably, we're probably done with that level of research and it's time to go into big, collaborative and citizen science projects, you know, very big projects. And now we have the technology to do them and we have the data analytic skills through artificial intelligence and machine learning to look for patterns that in the past, you know, human coders or even statistical analyses wouldn't be able to necessarily sort out. So I think there's a lot of promise there. Um, and then to be really blunt, we need funding. I mean, it's the, I had a colleague who did an analysis once and said every single, if you took all the funding that went into any kind of research on extended phenomena, extended human capacities, it would be less than one F-16 fighter plane. You know, it's not even approaching $50 million. And so that without putting the kind of time, attention, money, resources, funding, ingenuity into this world, the same way that we have into the world of genetics or brain science, we're probably not going to crack this code. And it is absolutely as important as cancer research, as brain research, as genetic research, because if we don't start to understand how people think and how they change their thinking so that they don't engage in behaviors that hurt the planet and hurt other people, um, we're not going to make progress as humanity. It won't matter whether or not we're getting sick. We're making each other sick. We're making ourselves sick because we're engaging in behaviors voluntarily. Um, like right now, most of the health problems that face us are behaviorally caused. Um, heart disease, addiction, suicide, you know, these are the main causes of death after cancer and, and all, most cancer is caused by smoking, which is also a behavior. So it's like, if we don't start getting into people's interior world and how to shift that, it's not going to matter how much we shift the exterior or the material world. Mm. You can probably do a whole economics of you know, not, not looking at this. There you go. I mean, we, we definitely do healthcare economics and the economics of, of different programs and education. Mm. 
or in business. So economics of human potential. Yeah, there you go. That's a good one. Mm. How can other people get in touch with you, get involved, donate, and uh, learn more about your work? Our website is noetic.org, N-O-E-T-I-C.org. And you can become a member there. You can learn about all of our research. Um, we have an international conference next summer, July 2019, which will be on the 50th anniversary of the first moonwalk, Neil Armstrong's moonwalk. So the theme of the conference will be What's Possible? And it's in the heart of Silicon Valley. And we'll be bringing together wisdom traditions, inner exploration with technology, business, and science and I invite everybody to come to that conference, too. Awesome. All my favorite things rolled up into one. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll see you there. Yeah. Well, Cassie, thank you so much for being here, for sharing with us your own journey and the exciting research that, that you're working on. You're welcome. And for you, think about what's possible. What new practices can you engage in? What communities can you connect with? And what change can you make in your own life and in the lives of others? I'm Julie Chan, and until next time, be on the lookout for all possibilities. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the expressed written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.